it's coming down to crunch time for Massachusetts ballot measures. Most of the 2024 options made it through the gauntlet of attorney general certification and are rushing to gather about 75,000 signatures by Tuesday, but there have been snags aplenty. Several versions of election reform measures, including ranked choice voting, were kicked by the AG at the certification stage, though local efforts are still underway in cities like Boston, which voted in favor of a 2020 ranked choice voting ballot measure, even though the state as a whole shot it down. A ballot measure that would allow cities and towns to implement rent control just couldn't meet its signature threshold and withdrew, so that will now be a legislative fight. When it comes to ranked choice voting and rent control, I've talked about these before with proponents, so remember to poke through the podcast archives if you missed an earlier discussion, but this week we're hearing from the opposition. I'm Jennifer Smith with Commonwealth Beacon, and today I'm talking with Paul Craney and Jennifer Braceres of the Massachusetts Fiscal Alliance, which opposed the disallowed ranked choice voting ballot measure and withdrawn rent control ballot measure, but they support a ballot effort needling the legislature by trying to open up its financial and decision-making books. October polling from UMass Amherst found 64% of respondents said they would vote yes on the rent control measure, and 67% would vote yes to let the state auditor audit the legislature. But there were substantial partisan splits, as you might expect. Only 43% of Republicans support the rent control provision, while 77% of Democrats were on board. So let's dig in. Paul, Jennifer, thanks for being here on the podcast. Thanks for having us. So let's start with the general political landscape. We're going to get into a bunch of different ballot questions, some different policy initiatives. But since most of these questions have come up before in some context, we had a completely different governor and therefore a more mixed party government at the time. So either of you, whichever would be most comfortable jumping off with this, how would you kind of grade and compare Governor Maura Healey, who ran as the most moderate of the Democratic candidates, at least now that she's been in office for most of the year? I think one of the big things for Governor Healy versus Governor Baker is that the landscape is much different now than even it was a year ago. I think the passage of the uh, income surtax, the millionaire's tax, has had a huge impact in Massachusetts. I don't know about your audience, but almost any time I drive into Boston, I see three or four Florida cars going in and three or four Florida cars going out. And it's, it's hard to not spot it at this point. So I think Governor Healy has a completely different Massachusetts than Governor Baker did. And then you throw in there the immigration problem, which is uh, only increasing because the problem is not getting addressed at the southern border properly. So I think Governor Maura Healy has, um, she has her challenges, obviously Baker did as well with the MBTA early in his time. However, these are, I think, um, significant challenges for our state and things are already starting to take place that people are noticing the impact. Uh, the Tax Foundation recently came out and showed Massachusetts its competitiveness is dropping. We're now, I think, the fourth worst in the country. And the immigration problem with the right to shelter law seems to be a powder keg going off right now. So I would say I think she has um, incomplete right now. These are big challenges. And I would say uh, she needs more time to see if she can handle them. I will say the last note I want to make is that the legislature has recently passed tax reform. I don't think is going to be the answer to our competitiveness right now. If the goal was to try to mitigate question one from last year, the millionaire's tax, the tax package is a failure for that. If the goal is to try to keep people from going to New Hampshire or Florida, the tax package is a failure. And if the goal is to try to bring people to Massachusetts, again, the tax package is a failure. So I think she needs to do a lot more than what uh, she was advocating for a few months ago. 
And unfortunately for a lot of the Beacon Hill establishment, the answer really is you have to mimic Florida and New Hampshire. And that means raw tax cuts and eliminations is that's the only way you're going to compete with these two states, which are uh, eating our lunch at the moment. All right. Well, let's get into ballot initiatives, some of which you will literally not see on a ballot. So let's start there, actually. Um, the ranked choice voting ballot question uh, will not be before 2024 voters because it was not certified uh, because they tried to basically put a very similar ballot question uh, in too soon after trying this last time. So... Jennifer, why don't we start with you here? What was kind of uh, the objection on principle from Mass Fiscal? And then what was the legal objection that was being made? Because I'd imagine you folks probably wouldn't have liked the measure, even if it had been within the six-year window. Yeah, that's right. We opposed it um, the last time it it came out. Um, Many members of us opposed it. And the reason we did, quite frankly, is just because it makes voting more complicated, less accessible, and less transparent. For the voters. It's more complicated because the ranking system um, requires you to do more research, to be a more sophisticated voter, to know something about all of the candidates. As much as we would like voters to take that on and, and do their homework before they go into a voting booth, the truth is that most voters have sort of instinctual feelings that they like certain candidates and dislike other candidates. Usually they they have maybe a strong feeling about one or two and they don't know anything about the others. So we're asking them then to rank um, candidates, you know, on the basis of of not a lot of information. Um, The problem with that is that if they're not comfortable doing that and they only choose one or two candidates out of, say, five, then their top candidates don't get a majority their ballots get exhausted. They get basically knocked out of contention. And those voters don't have an opportunity to participate in the instant runoffs that occur behind closed doors uh, after the fact. So it's sort of anti-democratic in that sense that it doesn't, it's a runoff where all voters don't get to participate in the runoff. So it's not really one person, one vote in that true sense. It's complicated sometimes when you look at the ballot. Studies have shown that older voters, people for whom English is a second language, first-time voters sometimes get confused and mark their ballots in a way that they get disqualified before any of their votes are counted. And then what happens is if it does go to a runoff, it often takes a significant amount of time to recalculate and redistribute these votes Um, which really gives voters, uh, it undermines voter confidence in the system because the more time it takes between election day and resolution, the more room there is for mischief, frankly. And so voters don't trust that the outcome is what it would have been in a straight ballot. And there there are lots of other reasons, um, but essentially it boils down to more confusing, less accessible, less transparent. That's why we're we're against it. And that's frankly why cities like Worcester, Massachusetts and Ann Arbor, Michigan, who tried ranked choice voting, repealed it once they realized it was a, you know, a complete cluster. 
Paul, uh, we've sort of alluded to the fact that it's not going to actually be going forward in 2024. And part of that was because of an argument that you advanced, which uh, has also, you know, been been taken up by the AG, which is a procedural one, a technical one. You aren't allowed to have something that's substantially similar to another ballot measure within a certain number of cycles. But does that mean you're looking ahead if they end up just, for instance, coming back next year with essentially the same thing? Yeah, and I just want to note that uh, in the 2020 election, when this was before the voters, um, I think we all have to thank Jen Braceros for being such a surrogate for the no side because it won 55, 45% with $10,000 behind it versus $10 million. So it was quite a lopsided win for the no side. And uh, Jen and others did a great job speaking very clearly to the uh, voters to so they can understand what was before them. But yeah, in 2020, about 80% of all the towns and cities rejected ranked choice voting across the state. It was a pretty resounding victory for the no side. It wasn't even close. Voters had a chance to digest it and they overwhelmingly said no to it. And I think that's worth noting for the future, for the folks that want to push this. You know, you're really trying to um, force an issue on the voters, even though they rejected it. And what they did is they actually took a playbook from 2020 for 2024. And what I mean by that is in 2020, when Massachusetts clearly rejected ranked choice voting, that same year they had a similar effort in Alaska, where it was ranked choice voting plus something else. In Alaska, most people didn't focus on the ranked choice, they're they're focusing on the plus other policy. And it barely passed. And then it was almost after election day, people realized in Alaska that they're gonna be picking their, their leaders quite different from what they were used to. So that's what the proponents were trying to do here in Massachusetts. They were saying, let's do ranked choice voting plus three other different policies. And I don't want to get too much into the weeds of what those other three policies were, but they basically picked things that most people would be for in a way to try to trick the voters that they're they're actually voting on the plus policy and not on the ranked choice voting. And you filed a brief arguing this wasn't legal. Luckily... Massachusetts Constitution is pretty clear about these types of things, and they foresaw this happening. And we filed a, uh, a written brief with the Attorney General's office on August 11th, and we did a follow-up brief. And we made two very distinct arguments to the Attorney General's office for why it shouldn't go forward. And one is called the, and I don't want to bore your audience too much, but it is pretty interesting. One is called the Cert- Certification Clause of Article 48. And that it basically talks about what you had said, Jen. You can't force a question onto the voters so quickly after they've rejected it. You have to wait six years for your election cycles. And the state constitution is very clear about this. You have to ask the ranked choice people why they were trying to do this, even though it's so clear you can't. My guess is they preferred a presidential election than a governor's election. That is the only thing I could think of. Maybe they have some funding for right now. It's also uh, obvious for your listeners, if you check it out online, that there is a national effort to put ranked choice on a lot of state ballots right now. So maybe they just wanted to come to Massachusetts again and they didn't do their homework as well as we did. Um, The second main issue for why it was rejected at the Attorney General's office is something called the Related Subjects Requirement of Article 48. 
Listeners might be familiar with that because of the ballot question that was thrown out regarding Uber and Lyft drivers uh, last cycle, essentially saying that you can't try and jam so many unrelated items onto one ballot measure that voters themselves are stuck essentially saying, well, if I want this one thing, then I have to agree to all of these other essentially riders in the same bill itself. So uh, I, I believe that's what you were referring to when you were talking about them putting things, for instance, like same day registration and other voting changes into those uh, measures. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And um, the court has uh, said over the years that you can have things that are kind of similar, but they really have to be dependent on each other. And again, there's the three different plus um, policies that threw on ranked choice. None of them are dependent on ranked choice itself. And the, the courts have said in similar cases where people can come into the ballot box and look at these two issues and say, I support the policy A, but I, I disapprove of policy B. Uh, and it can't be that way because, you know, it, it creates a, a quagmire for how we govern. And ballot questions are um, more narrow than the legislative process, and not a lot of people know that. Um, so even legislators, I think, sometimes forget that what they're putting forward as a, as a policy at the state house, you can't necessarily go throw that in a ballot box as a question. And the state constitution does that to protect the voters. So you have something that's more pure and easy to understand. And of course, ranked choice is not easy to understand. That's just a little dig at it. But we, those are the two main arguments that we put before the attorney general. It's worth noting that the attorney general is publicly endorsing ranked choice. She's on the proponent's website. Uh, maybe that was a calculation for the proponents. They're thinking that she'll let this one go through. But the great news for the people of Massachusetts, not only did they reject this by 10 points in 2020, but their uh, elected attorney general uh, responded to our written brief, and she agreed with both of our points, and she copied in her uh, rejection letter to the proponents basically the same exact arguments. So she had three different uh, letters to the proponents for those three different ballot questions that deal with ranked choice, and each one cited the written comments that we gave to the Attorney General for why they should be rejected. So I think the proponents, yes, they could come back in 2026, um, I don't see how they can come back with ranked choice voting plus something else. Uh, if they do come back in 2026, I think they're still going to have to deal with the issue of six years ago, the voters here overwhelmingly rejected this issue. Why do you think all of a sudden we want it? There's a lot of issues in campaign finance law and elections that I think could be reformed. But this one doesn't seem like one that there's much of an appetite. So I'm glad you're kind of bringing up the look ahead here because uh, both in legislation that's looking at introducing or allowing some version of ranked choice voting and also a few local initiatives is it does look like for the next cycle at least uh, the effort is going to be on the municipal level. So most cities, as you noted correctly, did vote against this ballot measure. One of the ones that didn't was Boston. And so we're seeing kind of a renewed effort in Boston. Um, it's got a decent shot of kind of getting passed up through a home rule process, largely because, of course, the city voted in favor of it last time. So I do want to at least kind of check in and say, well, is it going to be essentially um, a game of whack-a-mole at the local level if a bunch of municipalities are trying to put forward some version of a ranked choice system that then, of course, uh, has a very good chance of also hitting sort of the legislative buzzsaw. So how are you thinking about these local initiatives? I'm not sure really what you mean by, by whack-a-mole, but, I, you know, I think 
rank choice isn't good for statewide elections for sure, but it also it isn't good for municipal elections. And um, I understand the appeal of it in that, you know, what it promises to do is offer you more candidates, more choices, not just sort of a polarized, you know, one Republican, one Democrat. And the argument is that it will help build consensus. Everybody, you might not get your first choice candidate, but more people will get their second choice candidate. The reality is those things don't pan out when you see how ranked choice voting works in practice. Um, it doesn't create a consensus because so many ballots end up either being discarded um, or exhausted. So disqualified or exhausted because people don't rank every candidate um, that in the end, what you get is is a faux majority. So, you know, you might have a third or fourth place finisher end up with a faux majority of the remaining uh, ballots that are left after the whole process is complete. And so the person who ends up taking office is somebody who wasn't the first or second choice of, you know, of a majority of the voters. So um, it doesn't really lead to consensus. It leads to sort of bizarre outcomes where odd fringe candidates end up getting in that they're, they're under no other circumstance would they ever have gotten in. And so, you know, I think, like I said, it's confusing to voters. I think it... Um, undermines their confidence in the system, but it also doesn't do what it promises to do. And that is uh, to give voters more choices and to create consensus that that it does not do. For the city of Boston, particularly, ranked choice is a horrible idea. But the city of Boston, you do have a very unique election system there with just regular runoff voting, you know, works pretty darn well when you think about it. The top two vote getters get to advance to a November election. There's about a month in between. Um, yes, any system could always be analyzed and improved, but it allows the, the voters to retune in to the two candidates. It also allows the two candidates to maybe adjust their policies to be a little bit more broad for the voters. and allows everyone kind of a moment to, to restart and re-engage the voters and the voters to restart and re-engage the two top candidates. So I wouldn't throw that system away. I think it works really well, especially the nonpartisan nature of it. For ranked choice voting, just tacking on to the things that uh, Jennifer said, um, the only way it does pick a winner is by discarding ballots. That's the only way. And unless you can pick the two candidates that are last standing, your vote is tossed out to find who can actually win. And for a lot of political people, they might be able to crack that code. Most people won't. And even some of the smart political people won't be able to do it. You know, when we were debating this issue in 2020, it was during the Democrat presidential primary, and they had about 20 legitimate strong candidates running, even Elizabeth Warren. There were a lot of good candidates. You know, these were not fringe candidates. And it was almost impossible to figure out who would be the last two standing. No Democrat presidential primary voter could figure that out. And during that same time, we actually had a very contentious Democrat primary for the open uh, Kennedy congressional seat that Jake Auchincloss won. And remember, he had about a dozen candidates running that race. And that was happening right when we were debating ranked choice in 2020. And right after that primary, we would be doing these forums and asking the audience members, do you remember all those candidates that ran? There was 12 of them. Can you name them? And by that point, everyone's forgetting already. So it's very hard 
just to remember all this information for every election. And, and it wasn't even that they forgot after the fact. They, you know, voters didn't know a few days before the polls closed. You know, they they knew the names of a few of the candidates. They didn't know them all. That's the reality. And I don't think that you can impose a system on people in an attempt to force them to be better educated voters. It's it's that's not how it's going to work. So as much as we would like people to be well informed when they go into the booth, you know, people only have so many hours in a day to research candidates. And I think it just distorts the whole process. Well, I do want to get into a few other ballot questions while we've got the time for it here. And one of them was a rent control measure put forward by Rep. Mike Connolly, who is also pushing for similar rules and changes on the legislative front. It's very much been housing week over on the legislative Beacon Hill menu. So uh, thinking about the inability to gather signatures there, how much are you attributing to division within progressive groups where there was some disagreement about whether this should be a ballot measure at all versus discomfort with the subject matter itself? Honestly, I think it's both. Um, diving into Rep. Conley's ballot question, if you read it closely, which I have, uh, it's not just rent control, it's eviction moratorium, and it's brokerage fees. So again, I think he has a significant problem in his hands with the relatable issue. Um, you know, you may support rent control, but you may uh, not support evictions and vice versa. They're, they're not the same issue. I think the Attorney General kind of punted on those challenges. It seemed pretty black and white to me, and most likely she just wanted to let the state Supreme Court handle it after the fact. So I think people that are serious about maybe rent control saw Rep. Conley's ballot question and said, you know, this just doesn't seem right. Why should we support this if it's going to probably be defeated at the SJC level? Uh, and also it's it's divisive when you start throwing so many policies into one, you're going you're gonna to offend a lot of people who may support you on one particular issue instead of you have to support me on all three issues. Uh, and then of course, Rep. Conley himself, you know, he put this forward as a budget amendment several years ago. It went down in flames. We have to remember that uh, this issue, rent control as a whole, Massachusetts had rent control. And almost 30 years ago, we repealed it because it just didn't work. Um, all the claims that we have made as an organization uh, were true 30 years ago, and we're basically warning the state that if you do impose government rent control, it's just going to lead to less housing production and less money for maintenance and upkeep. And I think a lot of people, even if you don't rent, you're worried about your neighborhood. You're worried about the buildings that are rentable units. You want to make sure that they are maintained. So I do think there is a little bit of a local angle here where people, even if you're indirectly impacted, you are worried about this issue as a whole. Uh, so the voters repealed this law. It wasn't that they rejected. They actually had it. And they said, no, they repealed it. Um, so I think it, you know, it offended a lot of people along the way. And I'm so pleased that it went down in flames because it's such a bad policy. It just doesn't work. Uh, there's a lot of issues for why we have such a housing uh, problem in Massachusetts and rent control is not the solution. And I think we're going to take an interesting pivot now into something that uh, does actually seem to have some support, uh, what is also, of course, still a long shot ballot effort, which is State Auditor Diana Zoglio seeking basically authority through ballot measure, especially now that uh, Attorney General Andrea Campbell has said that there is no kind of intrinsic constitutional ability for the state auditor to audit the legislature, not just its finances, but also its policies and procedures. So, uh, 
uh, how are you feeling about that effort here? Especially given that we're talking about this on a Friday after the uh, legislature has uh, acted like itself and gone a bit long and put itself into kind of a tricky informal session situation when it comes to the supplemental budget. Well, I thought it was very interesting that uh, the attorney general had the auditor's ballot question before her office during the review process and allowed it to go forward, even though it's a very narrow uh, set of rules for ballot questions to go forward. And after it went forward, then she came out and publicly said, by the way, you can't audit the legislature. I found that timing to be very politically driven. I think most people did. Uh, For the average person, they see no problem why the legislature can't be audited. I mean, we all have to pay taxes. You know, legislators have to follow campaign finance rules. Just because you're a lawmaker doesn't mean that you're some kind of, you know, royalty in Massachusetts. You still have to abide by the rules. And we in a Massachusetts elect a state auditor do one thing, audit. Uh, and they are part of government. Um, and a bigger, bigger issue here is like, what's what are we hiding? I mean, <laughs> we have to ask ourselves, we're going through such great lengths to not audit the legislature for what? Um, you know, it's only in Massachusetts uh, does this kind of stuff happen. And it's very unfortunate, and I'm very hopeful that the the proponents of auditing the legislature are successful with their signatures, and they're successful with the ballot box. And of course, as we know in ballot questions, just because you pass something doesn't mean that it has to be enacted into law. So I hope that if it does pass, that the legislature will take that and will enact it into law. Because in the past, they have blocked ballot questions. They've blocked term limits. They've blocked other ones that pass with high, high marks. And that's that's again another fault in our in our process, but I'm hoping that um, it does prevail, and I think it should prevail. Okay, and uh, for any residents wondering, where can they expect to see your efforts focused most directly during the 2024 ballot cycle over at Mass Fiscal? Well, we definitely have to see what makes the ballot. We're keeping our eye very closely on the audit. The legislature uh, interested in the Uber Lyft fight. Uh, we definitely support. Uh, people's will to be their own boss, to be their own Uber and Lyft driver whenever they want. Uh, Definitely looking very closely at um, forcing tip workers to have a very high minimum wage. That's going to be very uh, harmful for the restaurant industry in Massachusetts. And the last one is uh, there's a voter ID effort. Um, And so there's a handful of ballot questions we're definitely going to be watching. We'll see who makes it on the ballot. And uh, I would say stay tuned. People can check out massfiscal.org or the FiscalAllianceFoundation.org. Um, but yeah, ballot questions will be something we pay a lot of attention to in 2024 because they have such a big impact for everyday Massachusetts voters. Thanks again to Paul Craney and Jennifer Braceris of the Massachusetts Fiscal Alliance. Thanks to our producer, John Gee. And thanks to you for listening. If you want to help other people find us, leave a rating or review wherever you hear your podcasts. And if you want to get in touch directly, feel free to email podcast at commonwealthbeacon.org. I'd love to hear from you. For now, wishing you a wonderful Thanksgiving from Commonwealth Beacon. We'll be back next week.